you got to get the balance right. So for the permanent staff, I would spend a lot of time trying to get that work-life balance to be appropriate, to get the culture right, to be generous with my time so I can understand my key people and what's making them drive and have the flexibility to make their family life and their personal ambitions fit around what we need to achieve. And if I get that right, then your knowledge stays, your good people stay. Part of actually running a grain farm means lots of tractor driving. We, we would be putting, you know, 3,000 hours a year on 10 tractors and 1,500 hours a year on six sprays or seven sprays. It's, it's a whole lot of sitting on in a cab. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. G'day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. Just before I introduce our guest today, I just want to give a plug for an important fundraiser we're doing here at AgriMaster. We've embarked on a goal of raising $22,000 to fund a room for two years at Ronald McDonald House WA at the Perth Children's Hospital. This is a vital accommodation for rural and regional families who end up in Perth with a critically ill child and need to stay close to the hospital. Please give what you can, and we've put a link in the show notes. Thank you. In this episode, I'm talking to Andrew Fowler from Conding up in Western Australia. Andrew is an inspirational farmer, a Nuffield Scholar and past president of Nuffield Australia and Nuffield International. Starting with a wool operation in the mid-90s after he graduated, Andrew and his brother Simon have managed to build a large grain and livestock business that is now about 70% grain. We discuss how the synergies of cropping and livestock allowed them to um, run increasing areas under crop without having to reduce their livestock numbers in the early days, and how Andrew explains how he manages risk and profitability with long-term relationships with suppliers and purchasers. Andrew and Simon now run a large professionally run grain and livestock business, employing with over 70 people at peak each year. Andrew's farm is located 800 kilometres from Perth and does not have a problem finding or keeping good staff in his business. And we talk about how he sees his main role is investing in people and how his recipe for success in HR management in agriculture. Andrew says his ability to execute his farm business strategy is all about people management and high-performing teams, and how people management is all about having good people, having a good experience, who then refer more good people. We talk about how the Fowlers and their local landowners of Conyop are actively investing in their local town with self-imposed levy to protect the critical mass of the town, and are bucking the trend of small country towns that are falling away making conning up a place where employees and family members want to go to school, socialise and live. We also discuss his Nuffield scholarship and how it inspired him to back himself and created the catalyst for his business growth and success, plus the current and past Nuffield scholars that continue to inspire him and inform him today. It was an absolute pleasure talking with Andrew and this conversation is inspiration and full of farm business management gold. Now over to Andrew. All right, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Good to get you on, mate. Um, and officially, so um, now you've um, you're pretty well known, I know, within uh, certain circles within Australia because you've been involved in Nuffield for a while and a few other things. Um, were your chairman for a while, I think. Yeah. But before we get into all that, let's talk about the beautiful country that is down Conning up Esperance Way because not eleven probably been down there. Tell us about your farming operation down there. Yeah, so we, we've got a, it is a beautiful part of the world and it's probably very isolated in a global context where we're 800 k's from Perth. So you've got that isolation factor, but Esperance is a really nice town and it's got most of the services you need. Certainly from a business point of view, it's very well serviced and, you know, the health care is fairly good. The education is fairly good. So it's a good place to live. and. You sort of find this divide between people who think it's terribly isolated because it's so far from Perth, and then you got the rest of the people who just come there and stay, so who are quite happy with it. So it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world, and and it's close to the coast, and we've got the most amazing beaches, and um, you know we we 
bottom end of our farm goes to within two k's of the water. So we've got really lovely ocean views from some of our properties and some of the houses on the farm of you know overlooking the ocean and the islands and stuff. Right through as you as you head north, it you know the rainfall drops off quickly and and we'd be down to you know we'd drop two hundred mils of rainfall from the bottom of the farm to the top of the farm. So it's a, it makes a really um, diverse business where some parts well suited to livestock and other parts really well suited to cropping and gives us a lot of spreading risk. So yeah. it's a, been, a, been, been good for our business. Yeah, and that's probably a good point to make. So we're just talking about it off air a bit, but in Western Australia, the rainfall ice heights close up really tight when you get down towards the Esperance. So the, the difference between rainfall zones, so probably better explain that. So, you know, the coast, you know, you're talking, so most people are used to a rainfall zone within their farm. And I suppose it's better to explain how how quickly rainfall zones change down your way. We sit on an average of six hundred and fifty mils, two k's off the coast, and the and the rainfall drops by twenty five mils every five k's. So by the time we get to the northern end of the farm, we're at four thirty mils of rainfall, and yeah. that's it's it's consistent. You know, like some years are wetter and dry, but the difference is always pretty much there, and it's very different in the winter. So. Um, quite often you might get a bit more summer rain to the north, but but the winter rainfall is definitely a lot higher along the coast. And that would take into even harvesting. Like, you know, you'd have you know, you'd have that annoying harvest drizzle, I suppose, the further you get south, but you don't sort of have that to the north of your farm, so I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's so frustrating when you have, you have to pick your days to go harvesting down on the coast because the cloud will just hang over you all day and you can see to the north it's bright sunshine and and we run a few couple of different teams of harvesters, so often you'd be two or three percent lower in moisture um up north compared to right on the coast. So it is it, it is uh, a little bit of a challenge, but it's a really good livestock country down on the coast. And so yeah. we would tend to have a higher weighting towards sheep and cattle on the coast and and uh, and full hundred percent crop further north. So probably a good segue into that. So you and Murray run a, a mixed property. So you're running, you know, livestock and grain. And so, so can you explain the sort of your your mix and how you came about that that mix you have in your enterprise? Yeah, well, I guess if you go back a little bit, when I um, finished university and and um, came back to the farm in the mid nineties, we were a sheep operation and um, was mainly a wool operation, really, with some shipping weathers. And a little bit of barley cropping, mainly for some stubbles for the sheep and a bit of sheep feed. But we might have grown in a, the biggest year, I think, was a thousand tons of grain. And um, it was right at the start of the, the revolution of no-till in Esperance. And we were able to convert to a cropping rotation on the back of no-till with press wheels and mm. um, growing canola and getting the rotations going. And it, and it really... It revolutionised the whole sampling in Esperance compared to the ripping it up, working it back days. So I took a, a real lead role in our business, you know, developing the cropping program and, you know, it, it, it's the mainstay of our income now, probably represents 75% of our income. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, we, we, we worked hard on getting the synergies between livestock and, and cropping. And and so the synergies come through the rotation with, you know, legume pastures to do to add to the nitrogen for the for the cropping and grazing the stubbles for the livestock. But also we would graze a lot of our crops in that June July period um, to provide a feed wedge to enable us to run a much higher stocking rate. And it's that sort of process and putting a lot of effort into the pastures. So we're reseeding maybe a third of our pastures each year to make sure they're high performing pastures. But that's that enabled us to run a high stocking rate, which means that in the if you look at a sort of a five year period, the profitability of sheep and cattle is neck and neck with canola and wheat. So it's given a real balance to the business and spread of risk, which is it's really I mean in my view that's to to enable growth you've got to have a a balanced portfolio and and to be able to manage risk you don't want to have too much downside. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So, you know, everyone's always trying to balance that that production risk and financial risk the whole time. And and a lot of your peers to probably to the north of you in the east and wet belt have have 
in in big, it's a big generalization, but moved a lot heavier towards a, a majority cropping enterprise, and livestock don't seem to play a big role. Is livestock for you, from a, a, both a production risk and a financial risk point of view, um, a, a deliberate a deliberate choice, or is it a little bit of a function you have that country you're going to have to cover with livestock anyway, or is it a mixture of the two? Do you find? Yeah, I reckon there's three things there. There's Probably the most important is my brother, Simon, and, and his wife, Robin. Simon's very good livestock um, mm-hmm. manager, and, and so we farm in partnership, and he's got a real skill set there and, and that, that knowledge and capacity to run that side of the business really well and, and a team of, you know, of staff. He'd, he'd have 10 people working with him to, to manage that. And, and so, you know, I think a big part of it is your natural skill set and what you're good at and what mm-hmm. you can extract from 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 the available resources you have on your farm, then there's definitely part of the the land stat, some of the soil types and, and rainfall areas we've got which are pretty challenging to crop. Now, on the bottom two thirds of our farms, the better years are the dry ones. So, you know, having livestock there's just definitely been a risk management. The the exposure to water logging has been quite devastating if you have full crops. So mm-hmm. that, that side of it's played a big part. And the, and the third thing is just the natural rotational benefits. I think maybe it's a little bit of a reflection of our soil type. So we struggle to grow really profitable grain legume crops and Mm -hmm. we struggle to maintain yield long-term, you know, without legumes compared to the rotations where we do grow vetches and cerradellas and things like that. So, you know, I think it's just the farming system has been well suited to having those pasture legumes in it for, for the cropping profitability. And those part, you know, those crop rotations that you've got coming off pasture rotations. Um, do you leave them in pasture for a while, like that? You know, that legume rotation where you got when you're grazing. Do, do you is that a quick rotation or do you leave it for a while? It, it that that does vary. I mean, for quite some time we were just doing a one year pasture rotation. You know, be and that's well suited so to things like vetch and serradella. But I, I guess you know now we probably are continuously cropping. Um, the better cropping paddocks for longer phases and then dropping them now into shorter, you know, to pasture phases for two or three years to try and build fertility a bit more in that pasture phase and, and get the risk cost balance right. There's, there's a reasonable expense in reseeding pastures every year just for one year. So trying to extract more mm. value from that improved pasture by letting it run through for two or three years has been you know, that's probably been a bit of a pivot from us over the last five years, I would say. Does it give you a bit of weed control opportunity as well? Uh, potentially it does, but it depends how you handle seed set in that pasture phase. Like we would tend to, when we know we're going with a longer phase, we'd include, in, you know, part of that would be a seeding of a tetraploid ryegrass. Mm-hmm. And so we're not, we're not controlling seed set. So you're probably letting the other annual weeds that are there build up, but with good grazing management, you can really reduce that and use the competitive advantage of the improved species that you've seeded. So, you know, depending on the situation, I think it it probably doesn't help that much when you let things set seed. And we found that if you spray top every year, for instance, and control the seed set, then it leaves a very fragile pasture mm-hmm. in the following year. And um and that that becomes the weak link, like your 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 country's prone to wind erosion, which is a big big risk on our on our sandy soils close to the coast. If you don't have the cover on it, come March April, you basically can't put any livestock in there at all until it's fully greened over. Yeah, and that's probably a good a good um a heads up for the so the the people who so for people outside West Australia listening to this, the, the, our summers are long and dry, so. Um, you're going to be, you know, the you and the, your um, your peers are grazing in Western Australia, dry pastures really from, I suppose, post-harvest or, you know, December right through to March, April really, aren't you? So the pastures do, they can get pretty, you've got to be careful with them, don't you? That's right. And I mean, that probably was part of the the whole farm progression was that um, we, we probably kept the same number of sheep and cattle that we always had back in the day when we were hardly cropping anything. And, and we're able to crop more and more of the farm and it became more and more sustainable because you had the stubbles to cover the animals mm. grazing over the summer. 
So, you know, really, we probably, we just increased the winter graze stocking rate. The whole farm kept the same number of animals and it and has dropped, you know, from starting out at 10% crop has gone up to probably 70% crop. And I think that's the thing that, that you're talking about that synergy, isn't it? So, so you're able to increase your croppable area without reducing your livestock numbers because you're able to carry livestock through that really fragile period in your region or in most Western Australian region, which is over the summer on stubbles. Yeah. And, you know, be, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting because it's like a lot of people think of in that context of changing their mix that you've got to have, oh, well, we've got to sell off you know, 20% of our livestock to increase mm. um, our croppable area, but that's not, it's not, doesn't necessarily have to be like that. No, that's right. And and probably to aid that process now, um, and this is fairly common in Western Australia, I think we will recognise that the long-term cost of having soil degradation issues from overgrazing is massive. Mm-hmm. And so to offset that risk and to increase the animal performance and um, productivity, we would be very similar to a lot of other people and we'd containment feed, you know, lock up those sheep into smaller pens and and feed them a supplementary diet Mm -hmm. for whatever period it takes until you know you've got the ground cover back into your pastures. And um, and that's been a bit of a step change for us in in also increasing the intensity of the operation. you know, that's probably over the last three or four years that we've really embraced that in a big way. And and also the other part of that is we would finish a lot of land for market through that feedlot system and and that gives us a lot more control over our marketing and, and, and a big part of our animal animal operation relies on those long term relationships with with the likes of Woolworths and the and the meat processors to have that you know, we're, we're probably supplying almost every week of the year. Oh, wow. Lambs, um, either through the feedlot off, or off grass. So you've got that long-term relationship. And and it, and, and in times like now where, um, you know, the livestock industries in Australia are really being challenged, um, you know, we've had a real collapse in our markets. We're still going okay. We've still got, you know, we're still getting our animals processed and, and the values have held up pretty well compared to others who just don't have that market to go to. So from a financial risk point of view, the 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 ability to have those longer-term contractual relationships might not be allow you to participate, say, in, this, in that case in the spot market, but in this case it's giving you a, a lot more sustainable income stream when markets are doing what they're doing at the moment. Is that sort of how it's working? Absolutely, yeah. We, we've got... We've got real clarity of where we're going to sit from a from a marketing perspective. Like the the meat processors come to us with a forward indi- indicative price, which they've upheld. Um, and so, you know, two years ago, we we're probably a little bit behind, but we're so far in front in a year like this. Um, and, and I think that stability, you know, it comes back to a real key theme of my way of running a business. It's is to reduce risk, you want to have long-term win-win relationships. Uh, they're really important. So, and that's a great uh, uh, that that's a great um, way of looking at. It. So, a lot of people see farming as boom bust, right? So, you know, you're either killing it or you or you or you're having a bad year or whatever. And from what you're saying, it, it's the way you operate. Do you work on the more the function of having a sustainable long-term margin rather than trying to pick the top of things? So, so what's your strategy or your thought process around that, both with grain and livestock, I suppose? Yeah, definitely. And probably because of where we farm, where we're quite um, consistent in the environment, really, like we don't get that severe drought like you'd get in through the inland areas further from the coast. So, you know, we're, we're, we're quite consistent with product, production outcomes and it leads itself to having good long-term relationships. You can become dependable and, and you're not creating risk for yourself to enter into sort of longer-term commitments with suppliers. And um, I just think that the, the the relationships that are enduring and beneficial for both partners lead to, you know, better long-term outcomes. And, um, and, and there's a really classic example of what's happening in the livestock industry in Western Australia where you know, there's been lots of people want to get out all at the same time and the market's collapsed. I mean, mm-hmm. 
we would see that you just have to you have to be consistent and you'll you'll ride the ups and your downs through that. But it, you know, if, if you've got the marketing side of it sorted out, it's not actually changing the the outcome that much from a from an income generation point of view. And I suppose the other thing is like we're talking, I think I'm not across this in particular, but obviously there's obviously process of viability and process of capacity and all those sort of things in the context of a land market you're talking about is that those companies that you're supplying to or you want to supply to over the decades have to be sustainable in themselves. So they've got this massive variation of supply. It doesn't really benefit them either, really, does it, in helping their businesses stay there? No, that's right. I mean, there's no doubt that probably a couple of years ago, they were really um, needing us to be in the market providing finished lamb all through you know, we, we sort of providing lambs out of the feedlot from January through to August before the, the grass season starts. So that's a really, that for a while, that was really important for them. And now the favour's being returned the other way, whereas us having access to the market's really important to us. So, yeah. you know, it, it's definitely win-win. Yeah, definitely. Now, I want to talk about now, Andrew, you and uh, Simon, I don't know how big the extended family are, but you've expanded. Like you talked about that when you came home from university in the 90s to now, you've expanded quite a bit. And especially when you're going from a livestock enterprise, which tends to be not as capital as intensive as, as, say, your cropping enterprise would be now. How did you go about managing that, that you know, that, you know, you would have had to ramp up capital expenditure and acquiring capital and both in land and machinery as well. That that and so, how did you go about managing that transition? Because everything would have got bigger. Like your HPs would have got bigger, your overdrafts would have got bigger. The fluctuation in income would have changed a lot from livestock. So, was that an easy transition for you and the the rest of the family, or was it, were, did you have a particular strategy around that? I don't know that we set out, you know, in the mid nineties with this. With, with an intent to do what we've done, it's been a, just a continuous evolution. I think for me to actually make it happen, the growth in our capacity to manage people has, has been the key driver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the cash flow business side of it has been on the back of being profitable and being able to generate the, you know, it's like reinvesting your profits. So I suppose it's been, a, it's been a big theme of ours as we've grown. But um, actually to make it happen, to execute it, that's all about people and people management and building, building high-performing teams. And, and I guess, you know, one of the, the, the point you raised that sort of growing up on a sheep farm with very little machinery, I didn't have the natural exposure as a young person to, to, to a good mechanical background and all the rest of it. So... You know, I've learned a lot myself, but I've surrounded myself with people who are very good in that space. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think even today, particularly with this sort of where our business sits now, having a really well-run workshop for us is, is the key to the operations running smoothly and being able to be in the right place at the right time with all of our people and our machinery to, to get the job done. Because essentially farming is, is so much about timing. Most people are doing essentially the same things. It's just what, when and how you do them that is, is sets you apart from, from everyone else. Yeah, definitely. So th- uh, this is a really place I really want to drill down on. Now, from the outside looking in, you've been, you seem to have been quite successful in both um, attracting and retaining uh, decent um, – because you have a, 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 a workforce, so you have a, a quite a large, I suppose, workforce over the, over the course of the year. Can you go through – how do you how do you do that? So we you know we have a lot of clients and um, uh, you know customers talking about, it. and one of the things that's constant is we can't find people, we can't keep people, no one wants to come and work wherever the farm is. But you are literally about as isolated as you can possibly get, um, and you have this massive workforce. So is there a secret, Andrew? I mean, what's what's the trick here? So there's there's probably a couple of parts to it. Um, firstly, the permanent. So, you know, you have to create a really positive culture. If you're going to retain people and, and have good people, then they've got, to, they've got to enjoy being at work and they've got to enjoy each other's company and they've got to have, you know, there's obviously a certain amount of pressure to perform in a, in a business that's, that's got a lot going on, but it's, it, 
you got to get the balance right. So for the permanent staff, I would spend a lot of time trying to get that that balance, work-life balance to be appropriate, to get the culture right, to understand, you know, to be generous with my time so I can understand my key people mm-hmm. and what's making them drive and have the flexibility to, to make their family life and their personal ambitions fit around what we need to achieve. And, and, and if I get that right, then you, 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 your knowledge stays, your good people stay. Um, part of, of actually running a grain farm means lots of tractor driving. We, we would be putting, you know, 3,000 hours a year on 10 tractors and, and 1,500 hours a year on six sprays or seven sprays. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a whole lot of sitting on in a cab mm-hmm. and that seems to burn people a bit. So we, we do rely pretty heavily on, on sort of, um, overseas. Or, or Australian, but younger casual workers to drive our tractors. And, and I don't like using the term backpackers because, you know, basically they're all agricultural based people with a, with an agricultural future. Mm-hmm. But, but we're relying a lot on, on, um, young people coming in from overseas to fill those roles. And that, you know, that's been easy for us because we've created the right environment and have enough, um, Momentum going now. It's all about good, good people having a good experience and referring other good people to us. And so, I don't know. We we probably have five people a week asking for work here, and um, and we're just probably picking the eyes out of that. And and I always fill up with staff, and then someone really good comes along, and I'm kicking myself that I haven't <laughs> haven't got any spots <laughs> left. But you know, it, it's a different experience to what you hear about with the typical complaining about staff. We I love actually, but having grown our business, the thing that I enjoy the most is the ability for me to have changed my role from being an operator of machinery to being a manager of people. And I really enjoy getting the best out of those people and, 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 and the structure and the culture and getting that right so that I enjoy going to work has been the most satisfying thing about our business for me personally. And in context, so give people a bit of context here. So you've got what, 20 odd? seeds plus all the ancillary stuff. So during a peak time, let's say seeding harvest. So so what's how many how many bodies do you have to how many, you know, people in your team do you have to have through a through a typical year to have that many bits of equipment working? Yeah, I mean we would probably with 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 the livestock side of it as well, we'd we'd be paying, you know, seventy nearly seventy people at peak. Mm-hmm. Um there'd always there'd always be 30 to 35 people on the farm. We, um, we have a big focus on, on, um, improving our soils. So we're busy from as soon as harvest finishes, we start deep ripping and spreading lime and gypsum and digging drains and threading clay and doing all this soil improvement mm. stuff. So it's busy going, you know, chip work around the clock a lot. So it, it's, it, it is a, um, it's a, it's a busy place, but getting the getting the um, structure right and the people to come and do that's fine. And and the other probably key part of it is the housing. You know, yeah. You know, in regional areas, uh, as as much of the difficulty in the towns now is actually finding places for people to live. Mm-hmm. And we have every house on our farm has been renovated up to a standard where it's it's acceptable. Um, some of them are very good homes. Some of them are, 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 you know, we put enough work into them to turn those sort of 1970s build homes into something that's that's good for a family to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have, I have a handyman painter full time on the books, fixing houses up and continually improving people's houses. And, you know, it makes a big difference. You put a lick of paint in and a new carpet and stuff like that. So you put the effort into that side of it. And then all of our um, casual guys, um, and girls live in sort of donger accommodation. So, um, you know, it, it all works pretty well. You've got to have cleaners. You've got to have a cook. You've got to do all these other things to make it happen and, um, and good systems. So, you know, we rely, we rely on, um, process works to help us with, with HR and, mm-hmm. and work health and safety. But, but, but the compliance side of it probably doesn't make much difference if you're employing two people or, or a hundred. Honestly, you, you've got to have the systems in place to, to safely employ people these days and the compliance is not much different if you've got the right systems behind it. 
Do you think now, like, it, it, you know, a lot of farms are getting quite large. So if I walk into any district around Australia, there's going to be the farmers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So at the end of the day, what you're saying is really success as you get beyond that a typical family unit, which is what a lot of farms were, let's say, 20 years ago, to now having a labour force, whether it be a, a large labour force like yourself or even just two or three. Your success now, you've got to switch your thinking from now it's about success through other people rather than me and my, me and my direct family. Do you think it's you've got to change your mindset? Like you say you enjoy that, but do you think you have to change your mindset as you have grown like to know that, that it's now a people business rather than me driving tractor business? Uh, I think so. And I was probably really fortunate in uh, – I was 24 when I got selected to do an Uffield scholarship. And at that stage, we employed one or two casuals. You know, really, it was it was just my brother Simon and myself did mo- most of it with Dad helping, and and occasionally we'd get a helper in for seeding and and harvest. And I got exposed to a lot of um, really good agricultural businesses that all talked about the most important thing in their business was their people. You know, and I couldn't really understand it. Um, you know, when, when, when the most successful people would say that the, the biggest asset I own is my people, and I'm thinking, no, it's not, it's the farmland, it was your tractors or whatever, but it's, as we've grown, I've, I've never forgotten that. And so I've been keen to explore or to, to, to improve my capacity to manage people. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the Rabobank EDP course of, sort of 10 or 15 years ago, and that was really good for me. I was, I was at the stage where I needed to professionalise my understanding of people management, you know, that's the psychology side of it and get the balance right, um, you know. And, and now I, I think I look at people that, that I have on my team and, and there's lots of different personalities, and the, the satisfying bit is when you can find the right job for the different people so they've got to fit where they, where they add value and they feel satisfied with themselves and their and their what they do, what they contribute in life. So, um, I think I think there is a job for almost everyone, um, as long as they um, contribute to that positive work environment and safe work environment. And so you're talking about, you know, so it's like you said, positive work environment, safe work environment. Obviously, the money's got to be right, but also the housing and conditions have got to be right. Um, their work life balance have got to be right now as they can't be, you know, just working endlessly without, without break. So it's a, what you're saying is it's getting that mix right. And, and that means that people want to work for you rather than you having to, you know, convince them really. That's right. And then those people then become your, your HR recruiters really. Like you, you, it's, it's a, if you, if you get the mix right, it self perpetuates and it's quite easy. And, and, and then all we have to do really is continue that positive environment. And it's making sure you, 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 you be on talking about culture and setting the, setting the scene so it can, so it can thrive. And, and so for me now, definitely it's a quite, it's impossible to execute it if I was trying to do it myself. Like it, it is absolutely dependent on teams of people performing well and teams of people working well together. And, um, that's where that. My operations leadership team are really critical, and that's where I spend most of my time is is one on one with my operations managers to make sure we're they've got everything they need to make it happen in the paddock. And does that make you as a, in all intents and purposes, I assume that either you and your your brother in this case, uh, Amari, are like this, like a CEO? So you're acting. In your head, you're essentially, if you're in an urban business, you would probably call yourself CEO, or I don't know the actual structure within your within your farm business. But but it's a different thought process. Like you said, you're managing a leadership team. You're managing obviously the whole farm strategy, and in particularly the cropping side for you. So is that do you do you actually consciously think of yourself in that role? And do you think it's important for other farmers to say, okay, once you start growing? You've got to start thinking of yourself more as a leadership CEO role rather than a farm worker role. Yeah, I mean, it's you probably don't want to get too far ahead of yourself, but that's that's where we are. That's where I am, um, and I, I'm 
I still perform that operations management function at times. Like I'm, I'm outside. I don't sit in the office all day. I, I'm, I'm out and about with my people and, and helping make stuff happen and, and involved in logistics and all the rest of it. But, but definitely I think my main contribution to the family business now is as that CEO type thinking and role and, and, um, and, you know, that's been a good thing. Like I, I, it's, Personally, it, it's created a role for me as my career has developed that, mm. that that you find rewarding and and enjoyable. The other thing I wanted to go to, so we talked about, just briefly, we talked about community. And so with all this workforce, so there's often across Australia, one of the comments I have is like shrinking communities. And, you're, and you are, now you're not far from Connie up by, how far are you, is that would be your local? That, that's definitely our local. So we've, we've sort of a farm, farm start at Conning up and then head 60 k's down the road further east. So yeah. that's definitely our, our community centre. Yep. So that community you would have seen as, as you and, and your other peers have, have acquired other properties around over the years, um, that, that natural mum and dad family community would have, would have naturally shrunk. But is, have you found the community changing in the context of where now you've got all, for example, all your full-time staff plus all your uh, part-time staff and that of your of all your other peers in the industry? Do you find the community is evolving in a different way because of the changing nature of the, all the farm businesses, yours and, and everyone else's around you? Yeah, so it, it definitely has. And I feel a strong sense of responsibility that, that we re- replaced some of those smaller family owner farms with really good people in my management team who are really mm-hmm. community orientated, who do all the things that you would expect, you know, good, good family businesses to, to contribute to the local community. Mm-hmm. But a, a, probably above that, um, I know in our, I'm, I'm quite proud of what's happened at Conding up over the last three years where we completely um, rebuilt our our tennis courts and you know, bowls and we've got a wonderful community centre and, and, and football change rooms and indoor basketball and it's a, there's been a long history of that, of, of local families driving a really strong community and, um, and that's, that's important not only for, for, for me and my family living here, it's important for my staff and, my, and their families living in the community and it's really important for our children and their prospective partners thinking about coming back to, to the community that there is a strong group and a strong um, focus for good family and recreational opportunities. So do you think it's beholden now as that, what I call, you know, where now our fathers and their fathers, you know, were out clearing land and building communities, there were lots of smaller stuff. So the communities were natural because there was, um, I know in our farming district there would have been twenty or thirty families, and I think there's probably three now. But there was this natural community built up of of pioneers, really. So, do you think it's now um, almost the responsibility of the the farming businesses within a community to deliberately invest in a community now to sustain that and build it up, and like you said, for yourselves, but also to attract and retain people? Absolutely, a- absolutely, and and. And we can, like our, our community is a really good example of putting, putting absolute money behind that where we've all, every single landowner has been contributing 50 cents a hectare for five years to fund what we've done at Conding Up. And, you know, we, 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 we got some grants, but nowhere near as many as we should have because COVID came along just as we we're about to get lotteries grant and, and that all got diverted to COVID funding. So. Mm-hmm. We just powered on and, and so probably 65 or 70% of the spend is coming from a self-serving loan through the Esperance Shine that's paid for by the, every landowner in the district and everyone has signed up to it. So not only did we get down there and do a lot of the work and make it happen, you know, like doing all the earthworks and stuff, we, we put the cold hard cash up to ensure that our community is a destination. And, and that's the thing. So. Whether you're on tra- you know, so um, I assume we'll go back to the staffing issue. If you're trying to attract really high quality full time um, people or even part time people to your operation, community matters. Like where the kids going to school, 
Um, is there a place where we can go and play, like you say, tennis and bowls? You know, what keeps me there? Um, schooling, I assume, is an issue. So, you know, that's, again, like you said, is that, you know, we're talking about employment, what you can do on the farm, but having, looking after this community, I assume, would be important part of that mix as well. It is, yep, because it it, it almost becomes um, self-destructing if you, if, you, if, it, if it starts to fall away, then people will leave and it, it, it just, it, it perpetuates. And, and we've, I've, I've seen it in other small towns where the, ki- the, the, the kids, basically in school almost shuts, you get down to less than 20 kids and they're all in one classroom and the quality of education is not good enough. So then the kids get pulled out to go to the larger centres and, you know, you have to, you have to try and protect the critical mass in the community to keep the quality there so that you have no second thoughts from families wanting to move to your area. Otherwise, I think it's, it, you know, maybe being close to the beaches and the, and the environment's part of it. But look, honestly, health and education are really critical. Getting the, for us, getting the school bus runs to come out from Estrance for the high school kids was a really important step mm-hmm. in retaining those, those staff who, who, traditionally probably wouldn't act as the kids got that bit older and they had to get closer to high school. Now we, we get them to stay. So that, it's all really important stuff when you're talking about high-quality people. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of communities, um, I mean, you've travelled around the state in Australia and there's a lot of communities that have almost disappeared. But I love this model of you as a community, both actually financially and obviously your energy as well, investing in this community and how it ends up serving you all. I think. It's quite inspirational, really. I think um, it's a model that a lot could probably copy. I think um, so. It's great. Yep. Now, and uh, you know, and it's, it comes back to you know, Mari's the chair of the Conningup um, Recreation Association. You've got to put your effort and to drive it and make sure it's going to be a success. Yeah. So it's not like you see. It's not just about money. You've got to, you know, yeah. Someone within the business has got to put a bit of effort in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Now, uh, to pivot away from something completely different, now we talked about Nuffield just through our conversation. So in 2000, you were a Nuffield scholar and I think you went and studied, I think particularly GM uh, GM cropping or something at that stage. I can't remember, Andrew, but um, yeah, you, yeah, yeah can, I mean, can you explain what you went and studied and what, and you're young, like you're in your twenties and how is that Nuffield experience? And obviously, you're a fan because you've been. You're a past chairman, I think, of Nuffield. Are you past chairman or current? I think you're past chairman. No, past past chair. Yeah, yeah past chair of Nuffield. So you're you're a, you're a big fan of the organisation. But for you as a young guy farming, um, how did that impact your your farming career? Do you think? And what did you learn? Yeah. So I mean, I, I had a I had a study topic. It was it was it was before we started growing um, GM crops. The Canadians were into growing GM canola and. I think Australia had started growing GM cotton, and and I I went to have a good look at you know what the technology was it safe for the environment was it something we should be getting into for production benefits you know what are the commercial how do you pay for the technology mm-hmm. and did a report looking at you know addressing those safety and food and you know human safety issues thinking that was all probably pretty safe and sound and. And, and really had recommendations in my report trying to encourage that we didn't lose our public breeding effort. Mm-hmm. And because you needed choice, you didn't want to be sort of locked into the, you know, the big multinational chemical companies. And that you should, in Australia, you should pay for that technology through an endpoint royalty rather than all of it being just in the upfront seed cost. Because mm-hmm. obviously this is a really good year to. To demonstrate that in Western Australia, where if you if you doesn't matter which part of the state, and you go use you know one point six or seven to two kilos of seed per hectare, so you pay for all of that cost up front. And even though half in in um you know parts of the northern wheat belt, they probably sprayed it out and turned it into a fallow, you know, four weeks after you know or, or two months after seeding because it's just been too dry. So. If you've if you've got a paper it all up front, it is quite a high risk in our Australian environment. So I was big on having the endpoint royalty system, which is sort of working a little bit, but with the canola space, it's not sort of most of it's in the bag 
cost of seed up front now, which it's probably fine for, for where we farm in essence, but it's probably a little bit problematic for the guys in the Eastern Wheat Belt who mm-hmm. aren't sure what their return will be from year to year. Um, the thing about Nuffield is that the, the topic you study is probably, it's important to get a, to receive the scholarship and it's, um, it's important that you can demonstrate some learnings and add value back to the industry, but it's, it is a pretty small part of the, what you learn and, and the benefits you get. And for me, you know, the first thing is the people I've traveled with, my, my fellow scholars from 2000 were, were some really successful and driven individuals who were absolute mentors for me. And I learned so much from them about business. Like every time you go to a business, didn't matter what, what country was in, you'd be back in the bus dissecting that business with that group. And it's, um, you know, I learned so much from them. Um, and, and, and probably that exposed you to, like I, I said before that, you know, the, the most success, successful businesses that you tended to go through, go to had some scale and had a, had a lot of thoughts about the value of people and how to manage the people. And those, those thoughts have never, never left me. They've been something that's, that I've always appreciated, even though at the time I, I couldn't actually understand how to put that into practice, but it was, I guess, my eyes opened up to what the potential was for the future and, um, and, and probably set me on a pathway of being curious. I mean, not long after coming back from the Nussel scholarship, we doubled the size of the farm. And I think since then, I reckon we've doubled twice more over the times. Like it's, 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 um, you know, being prepared to back yourself into, to take on the opportunities. I guess it gave me a lot of confidence from the knowledge I'd gained and understanding I had to, 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 you know, to have a go at taking opportunities, but being very focused on continuous improvement and people. And, um, I think they're the, the keys to it. And, and your long-term involvement, obviously as chair, but also just as a past scholar, you would have sat through a lot of presentations of, well, we just, I think it was the Nuffield conference last week or the week before, I can't remember, WA. Um, and you would have sat through a lot of gr- amazing presentations of both current uh, over the last 20 odd years. Do they, re- do they become a constant inspiration? Just meeting up with the scholars maybe annually, plus sitting through all those presentations of the next crop of scholars. Does that become a constant form of either energy or inspiration for you? Yeah. As, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think because I was quite young doing my scholarship, um, I sort of came back and you know, had, I got married, had my family, borrowed a heap of money, grew the business. Um, I think as you do when you're, you know, late twenties, <laughs> early thirties. And then, and then I got back involved in Nuffield probably 12 or 13 years ago and onto the board of Nuffield Australia. And that, and that was, you know, that whole process, I sort of spent 12 years maybe on Nuffield, Nuffield Australia was chair and then Nuffield International as chair. And I've finished all those roles now, but it was almost better than doing the Nuffield because I, I got these experiences to, to, to be involved in something off out of my own business combined with that enthusiasm and um, motivation and inspiration you get from the raw energy of right show from just the, you know, the interviews you do with people applying for Nuffield scholarships through to the presentations from the scholars coming back. And the friendships and um, um, help and support you get from the fellow scholars who become, you know, some of my, most of my best friends are Nuffield scholars. It's a, it's a really good group of people who share this same passion and energy. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable when, you know, as you sort of feel like you're preaching or going to church or something about it, but it, it is a great group of people and it does have a buzz in the air and something special about it. And, um, certainly for me, it's, it's been, it's been a really good part of my life. It's been something I've really enjoyed. And actually a couple of weeks ago at the conference, David, they, they awarded me a life membership at Nuffield. So. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. It's one of the most special things that you could get. 
in my view. So I was really, really happy with that and I'm honoured to get that recognition from from my peers. Well, congratulations. That's a, that's a massive honour. And it's also, if people don't realise, it's also a, a global community as well. So do you, do you find that global perspective that Nuffield has presented you with over the years um, helps you gain a gather, um, have a lot of pr- different perspective when you're farming there in Conninger? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, sometimes there's a little things. Like when I did find Nuffield, when I was travelling in the year 2000, farmland in Estrance was, you know, valued at the sort for, you know, two or $300 an acre. And that's what people were paying for rent for farmlands in Ireland and the UK. <laughs> and people just thought I was great, like telling them lies. And I said, you know, how cheap our land was. But I guess that, that, that it's just something like that gave you a huge appreciation of the potential profitability and the upside we had in, in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And, and that certainly gave me a lot of motivation to push our business along as quickly as we could, because you, you just knew that the, we were on a far better deal than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and that's, that, 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 you know, that's been well recognized. We've all seen in Western Australia what has happened to our land values, probably right across Australia, actually, in the last three years. Mm-hmm. And now, now I think we're in a different camp. Like now, how do you get a return on equity? <laughs> because <laughs> no, no, the land values have lifted so high that, you know, so. Nothing stays in flame forever, does it? But now we have a different challenge, and, yeah. and I don't. It's quite co- quite complex. What we're facing is now trying to justify the value that we sit on our balance sheets with our farmland. Um, it's it's extraordinary the growth, and it's great for everyone to have it on your balance sheet. But it does it does make it really hard to work out is 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 this a good investment, and should I ever buy a farm again? Yeah, and I think that goes into everything. It goes across the whole industry, doesn't? It goes into getting a return, like let's say you were buying and leasing. You know the lease prices, so it it it, it, it trickles through, doesn't it? So you know, and um, if people within the you know that creates you know um, issues within family members who don't want to be part of the farming operation. So it it, it has a lot to shake out, doesn't it? You know, it, like you said, it's brilliant, um, but it, it's it's it can be a double edged sword. Some of it, can't it? It's absolutely a massive challenge for us, and 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 I don't. I think you don't want to lose one of the one of my key favourite things I had from a mentor that I I spent time with on the Nuffield when I stayed in the states with this um, family friend who was in the 1980s with the CEO and chairman of Cargill globally, mm-hmm. and um, he was a real smart shella and. Uh, he was very big on not losing sight of the fundamentals. Like, you know, it's got to make sense. It's got to add up. And I, I guess I've always had this view that the challenge is to earn the right to grow. You've got to generate the profitability within your business to justify the next expansion or the next taking the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so either the land values have got to correct a little bit or we've got to take the next step. And I, I suspect it's going to be finding the next step and the pressure's on us now to continue this ramp up in productivity. And, you know, the, the last big step up has been on the back of deep ripping and liming and and all the rest of it. But I, I think there's still plenty of opportunity. I look at the work that, like, Nick Poole drives through the um, far um, with the high-input high cropping strategies in the high-rainfall areas. And we still have so many opportunities to increase this productivity, but yeah, you know, they're not as easy as they used to be. The attention to detail and the precision that's needed to to pull this off is is quite extraordinary. And you know, and again, I'll come back to our business doing that with scale and other people executing it for me means I have to have a really good leadership team who really buy into all of this stuff and, and make it happen because it's it's not easy to, to pull off. And that brings up a really big, we'll go back to the investment. So, you know, are you making decisions now, right? Is it, you like, you talk about, you're talking investing a lot in your soils. Now, investing in soils is an expensive and time-consuming business. And so, and obviously it has a bit of a longer in, um, return on investment window. So are you having to make active decisions now? Do I spend this money by buying, say, more land or do I spend this money um, improving the production capacity of the land I have? Is that a 
decision that you go through in your head or is it a little bit more intuitive than that, do you think? Oh, no, no, I think that the current land values changes that, that dynamic or that paradigm a lot. I, I'll never forget when I was 23, I suppose, of going to a once a field day or a seminar in Estrance, and I reckon Neil Wondell was speaking and he said, if you, if you think you need to be spreading clay on your paddock, you probably should just put the full sale sign up and go and buy another farm that doesn't need clay spreading on it. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he was right. Like the land was so cheap that you're probably better off just buying more land. Where we are today, improving what you have is a massive return on, on, in, on investment compared to buying more land. So, um, you know, I think things like tile drainage are just going to explode in Western Australia because where we've got to with relative land values versus, you know, and the risk when you get waterlogged is massive. You go from, from, you know, you go to zero when you're waterlogged. So the return on capital can be massive, but it's, it's very justifiable now because of where we sit with, with the land values to invest a, a thousand or two thousand bucks a hectare even is totally justifiable if you're talking land values that are over, you know, fifteen thousand bucks a hectare to buy. Yeah, I, I tell you, it's really interesting. Uh, I just um, last week interviewed um, Stuart Adams, who sold his farm in Kojanup and has um, bought up a whole lot of country and developed a whole lot of um, cropping country in um, in Quebec on the Ontario border, and um, he's tile drained the whole property, two thousand acres. So. It's um, obviously land values are the same things happen there, but um, yeah. So I, I didn't because I, I was saying at the time I've never heard of doing tile draining in um, in Australia, <laughs> but uh, there you go. Yeah, well, I think I think there's been 25 tile plows um, ordered or delivered since last year into Western Australia. So it's, it's about to take off. Yeah, yeah. Because you're saying Canada, obviously, he said it's a massive industry here. Just yeah, yeah, doing all that drainage. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so it's interesting how the farms continue to evolve. So before we go, so so what do you reckon the you've you've seen a lot of young scholars come through and have a different subject. So what do you reckon the um the future of uh, farming operations is looking like over the next 10 to 20 years? Andrew, what's your crystal ball looking like? Are we all going to be sitting in offices with auto robotic machinery driving around and um so you know, um automated sheep um Sharing, I don't know. That's been a dream for like 40, 50 years, isn't it? Um, yeah. So what yeah. what are you seeing coming through that excites you? Well, I, I look. I don't think you're going to get away from people in agriculture, and probably the demand for um, higher trained, higher quality staff is going to going to grow. Mm-hmm. And because because all this new, you know, the techno- technological solutions are complicated and need a, a deep understanding to make it work and, and to keep it working. And I, I, I do have a very strong tendency to want to keep things simple, but, you know, we're driven now to, to, to find the next gains and it just requires more complex solutions. It's, it's inevitable. So you have to have that balance between sustainable simplicity and and enduring profitability and, and, and they've sort of conflicting a little bit. And, and the solution for that is good people who can pull it off for you. Good educated people. I know in our business, we're probably really looking forward to embracing, um, virtual fencing. I, I think we've got, we've got 500 collars ordered for, for, for putting on steers, um, at the, maybe in the next, um, four or five months. And that'll be a that'll be a big bit of a change for us to really mm. sort of easily move through to more intensive grazing and and particularly when we're coming in, you know, we're, we're developing a lot of blue gum country that has been harvested, so you're up for brand new fences everywhere, and to do it intensively is is expensive. So the, the payback from going to collars is immediate, mm-hmm. as well as the productivity gains we'd expect to be able to get from rotational grazing. So that sort of stuff, but it will never stop. Like it will. We will continually find new things, and I reckon the challenge for a business owner is to understand well enough what's going on. So if you're stuck in an office, you're not going to get that deep understanding, that real gut feel for what you need and what's going to work and how it's going to work. You've got to understand your system and how you can apply some technology 
in your business to extract value out of that rather than just to be cool and have the latest stuff. It's got to actually pay its way. And, um, and that, that comes back from understanding how you can adopt whatever that technology is to fit because it's unlikely something's going to be perfect off the shelf. Yeah. And that's a good point, isn't it? So there's a lot of, I mean, agri-tech's been booming for the last five plus years, I suppose, but it doesn't mean yes. it's all going to be beneficial, does it? So what you're saying is look at the tech. Will this tech improve something? Will it improve my productivity? Will it give me a better return? Will it give me better information? Is that rather than, is it cool? Yes, yep. it's, yes, it's cool, but will it actually be useful? Absolutely. Yep. And, and it's picking the eyes out of that, but being open, you've got to, you've got to get out and about and, and see what's coming and, and probably, you know, the, the, the good people are going to make things work. So you, you need to be getting around the good people and, and having a, having a, sharing the ideas. And I reckon particularly in the Espence area, I mean, I spent, um, you know, I was on the SEPA executive, which is our Southeast Premier Weekends Association, so a grand group locally. And that culture of sharing information is really strong in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, people, and that's important. Like collectively, your productivity gains will be so much higher than if you sort of try and hold it, to hold your cards close to your chest and do it all yourself. I think if we get, we help each other, we share off each other and we learn off each other. And there's such an important role. In, in our farming businesses for being active in our grow groups. And, you know, I know my brother Simon is very active in the A sheep group, which is the, the livestock product, productivity group in Esperance. And, you know, we support and, you know, being involved in SEPWA for many years. It's they, they are the key to helping us learn from each other and improve at the rate we need to, to, to make our businesses sustainable. Do you know what? That's one of the, when I talk to, because I've been living in 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 Perth now for twenty years, and um, and I say one of the things that agriculture does better than anyone else, and so most of my um, urban friends uh, all do different things, but this ability to share what would be in an urban sense protected information and just share this is how I'm doing, it, you know, in helping each other improve productivity and profitability is quite a special part of agriculture, isn't it? So because outside agriculture, not many people, not many industries share how to. Um, it's, a, it's a special part. Absolutely, yep. And it's the key to our, I think it's the key. You, you've got to foster that culture and foster that environment where people are happy to participate in that sharing And because it, it, it will be to everyone's long-term detriment if we start. Um, trying to hold our cards too close. Very good. Just finally, mate, I've got two questions for you. The first one is I like to um, go about farming myths because the farming community is not huge in Australia. Um, you know, well, I think there's about 80,000 farmers left in Australia. Um, and so there's a, and there's not many people you go to. I remember when I was at school in the, a boarding school and most people had an uncle on a farm or they knew someone on a farm, but these days it's not common. What do you reckon one of the, persistent farming myths outside the industry continues to be, do you think? I, I don't really, I'm not, I don't think too much about that, David, but it, <laughs> I do, you know, I, I, sometimes in agriculture you get this stereotypical whinging farmer coming out. I'm not sure that's what, it's just unfortunate that the media hear about farming when something's not going right. Yeah. Um, the good news doesn't sell and so... If it's a drought or it's a flood or if it's, you know, this, the trouble we had with the cultural heritage stuff in Western Australia, the, the, it seems to be the negative stuff that gets out there. And, and that's, that's just not what agriculture is day in, day out. So I, I guess, you know, if, if I could change anything, it would be trying to portray the positivity and the excitement and the opportunity that agriculture presents. And that flows through then to more people being interested, which is absolutely what we need. Yeah, and it is probably one of the most dynamic and diverse businesses or industries you can get into on the planet, isn't it? You can pretty much pick any skill you want and there's a job in agriculture in it, isn't there? In, in any country of the world. It's so, it's so applicable across every country. So you have so much flexibility for a career. It's, un, it's unbelievable. Um, and finally, Matt, before we go, when you're not, running this massive 
operation of yours and looking after people and your family. So how do you spend your time? What do you do when you're not farming, Andrew? That's what I want to know. You know, I, I actually love getting out, you know, in the caravan with, with, with my wife, Murray, and, and we've got an off-road van and we just love getting into the bush. Like up north, we, we recently, my son's up in Kununurra at the moment working on Oasis Farms, growing corn and cotton and having a great time. He's on a pathway to go to Marcus Oldham in a couple of years. Um, but yeah, we just cruise up there for, for a week and, and back. So we're away for two and a half weeks and it's just great. I was camping, camping in the bush. It's, that's what I love, exploring the country. I was explaining that to someone yesterday. I said who hadn't been north of probably, you know, more river really. And I was just saying, you know, the best part of Western Australia is about 13 hours north. You know, it's just beautiful yeah. up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very good, mate. Well, thank you um, for giving your time to us generously today. Um, and I learned a hop. I learned a heap. Sorry, I'm mixing my words up here. Um, and um, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Oh, pleasure, David. And and good on you for doing it. They're, they're a good a good tool for all of us. So thank you. All right, thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off. Log on. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.